Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, which will be back later this month, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming. Hey, Reed. Also on board today is senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, welcome back. Great to be here, man. So, gang, you know, I'm not one who gets fired up on the air very often, but it's like something is in the Republicans drinking water in the last week or 10 days. I mean, I don't know if it's the moon and they're all becoming their werewolf selves or what, but it is a truly magical and scary time to be watching the Republican Party in this country, even more so than usual, which is saying something. And so today we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about Ted Cruz explaining what pay to play actually means on Capitol Hill. We're going to go through a couple of Lincoln Project ads, one we just released and one that helped us make our name. But before that, I want to talk about the fact that Donald Trump put out a statement yesterday calling last year's election rigged and that the big lie was that Joe Biden actually won. And he said this, the fraudulent presidential election of 2020 will be from this day forth known as the big lie. Now, many have criticized the statement, not surprisingly, because we all know we've been through it a million times on this show that it wasn't stolen from Donald Trump, that everything was legal. The only people who have been arrested so far for voter fraud happen to be white people in like Pennsylvania and Arizona. Liz Cheney, newly embattled in the House Republican conference for her apostasy vis-a-vis Trump and fist bumping President Joe Biden during his joint address last week, said, quote, the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. So, Rick, I want to start with you. My fear, as I was thinking about this today, is that 60 to 70 percent of Republican voters now believe, at least when they're surveyed, that last year's election was stolen. We saw that lead to violence on January 6th that we talked about a number of times. My concern is that every election in this country that is partisan in nature is now going to be seen through the prism of whether or not whoever wins, if it's a Republican who wins, the Democrats will not accept it. And if the Democrat wins, the Republicans will not accept it. Now, I want to believe in our better angels that the big D Democratic Party is still the party of democracy. But my concern is that we're pushing ourselves not only further and further apart on policy issues, but on legitimacy issues. And where does this lead us now? Because Trump, obviously, every time he gets bored or goes to do a wedding or whatever, this is something that comes out of him. You know, Reed, I think it's one of these moments where once you start down the hill, once you start running down that slippery slope, you end up with people rapidly losing faith in small d democratic politics. and. The Republican Party, as it's constituted today, is now predicated on 
the single big lie. It is now all these things around the tactics of telling people about cancel culture and Antifa and all this silliness. All those things are the supporting actors to the main singer in the opera. And that singer is the big lie that Trump's election was stolen. It's their proof point that the system is rigged. And it's their excuse to do anything they can get away with when it comes to either restricting voting rights or restricting absentee ballots or restricting mail-in ballots, especially when it comes to African-Americans and people of color. And so they justify all of this now. They can do anything they want in their minds because Donald Trump was cheated, according to them. Donald Trump was ripped off. It was a fraudulent fake election. And even the ones who are absolutely smart enough to know better, they can't out and out say, it's bullshit. You're wrong. And if they do, they become like Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney. They become apostates and they are under withering attack. I mean, Mitt Romney this weekend, they are under withering attack because they won't echo the same propaganda sewer that says that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Stuart, you've said a couple of times previously, including on our town hall meeting last week, that you don't believe that there's any Republican nominee at any level who can win a primary if they say that the 2020 election was free and fair. This seems to bolster that argument. And so give us some good news, if you would, about how we can push back on this. And then secondly, I want to get your reaction to Mitt Romney being booed at the Utah Republican Convention, because I know obviously you and Senator Romney go back a ways. But start with is there a way to climb out of this ugliness vis-a-vis the Republican Party? I don't think that there's any way to deal with this except to defeat these people. I mean, Steve Smith has said this eloquently, that you can't negotiate with them. You can't compromise with them. When you attempt to, it never ends well. So look at what happens when the Senate Republicans, 47 of them vote not to convict Donald Trump, when 45 of them couldn't pass a lie detector test if they were asked, is Donald Trump responsible for the attack on the Capitol and the deaths that follow? They all know it's true. So to me, that is a moment that will go down like the Munich Accord. When you attempt to negotiate, contempt to reach some sort of compromise with a fundamentally evil force. And, you know, the basic question here is, do you believe in democracy? Now, a lot of people don't believe in democracy. Most of the world doesn't have a democracy like ours. There was a time when democracy, when it was charted by those that charted it, it was on the rise. Now it's on the decline. And it could very well be that what's happening in America is what happened in Hungary, what's happening in Poland, what happened in Russia. We're so acculturated in this American exceptionalism broad theory that we are different in every regard, which we're not. There's no reason why the world's oldest democracy should continue to be the oldest democracy if the people who have been handed that legacy won't fight for it, won't recommit to it. So I think this is really uncertain. I'd like to say it's a slam dunk that obviously those that believe in democracy in America can carry the day in 10 years. But I don't see any reason to believe that that is a preordained destiny. You had the spectacle of Mitt Romney being booed. By some people, some people didn't at this state gathering of Republicans. But, you know, people forget when Romney ran in 2018 for the Republican Senate nomination, he didn't win the state convention. He came in second, which meant he wasn't the official endorsed candidate. And he had to get on the ballot to signatures. But he went on to win the primary easily and he won the general easily. So that hardcore of 
1,500 or so people who make up the party activists in Utah. I think they're pretty evenly split on Mitt Romney. But that's never been Mitt's base. But Stuart, let me ask you this. Okay, if it wasn't Mitt Romney, Senator Romney is in a different class on several levels. His father was governor of Michigan, obviously. He was governor of Massachusetts. He ran the Olympics here in Utah in 02, is now a United States senator, was Republican nominee in 2012. So he is not your average Republican moderate now standing up there at the lectern getting booed. If he gets booed, does anyone in that mold, Cheney, Kinzinger, any of them have a chance in a, a real contested primary where either Trump or the activist class or the donor class really choose to take them on? Do they have a chance? The National Journal tweeted on Monday that down in Texas 6, the special election that was held on May 1st, it was a so-called jungle primary where all Republicans or Democrats are together. Two Republicans finished one and two, both Trumpy. So no matter what happens when the runoff is held sometime later this summer, it will be a Trumpist Republican that takes that seat. What does that mean for the never Trump, anti-Trump movement if there is one within the party? Well, there's two phenomena that's happened. The Republican Party has become a Trump party and the Republican Party is much smaller than it used to be. So every day the Republican Party shrinks a little. So the intensity of those who remain increases. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I worked in a lot of races for people like Tom Ridge, Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan, Phil Scott. These are people that they couldn't win contested Republican primaries now that were closed to Republicans. If it is open to other voters, they can win. Those of us who are hoping that the Republican Party might rise again are engaged in our own lost cause. Don't save your Republican dollars. Your Republican Party is not going to rise again. It's not going to happen. So what does that mean? What I hope it means is that eventually, and I think it's a long term rather than short term, a new center-right party will emerge. But I think in the timing of it, just go back to this fundamental question. Can a Republican nominee for president in 2024 assert that he's running against a legally elected president, Joe Biden, and win? No. So is that likely in 28? I don't think so. So probably for the rest of this decade, to be the Republican nominee for president, you're going to have to assert that we don't live in a democracy. So this is very weird shit. First, for all of those history buffs out there, Stewart was paraphrasing former President George W. Bush after witnessing Donald Trump's inaugural speech in which he leaned over <laughs> to someone and said, well, that was some weird shit, which if any of you ever spend any time around him, you can absolutely see him and hear him saying that. But Rick, let me ask you this. I want to extend this thought that Stewart has. I want to back it up to 2022 in House and Senate races on the Republican side. And then in 2024, if you begin with the predicate that the 2020 election was stolen, and that is the basis or one of the serious bases of your candidacy, mustn't it continue throughout your campaign through Election Day and beyond? I mean, can you say that and then back off of it? No. In this case, it's a publicly facing affirmation. And if you say, uh, well, you know, I don't, I, the election was probably fair. I don't like it. But to try to like win over more moderate voters, they're going to find out about it on the Trump side. Try to be a candidate in any primary as Donald Trump's unblinking, unsleeping eye, like the Sauron of Mar-a-Lago, you know, staring out there at every moment, day and night, waiting for someone to say something disloyal. And the moment that we have someone come out in a hot primary 
to try to win over, you know, more centrist Republicans and say, well, you know what, Donald Trump was not legitimately elected. Biden is our president. Start the clock at that moment and watch what happens, because Donald Trump will come down like a ton of bricks on these people and he will hammer them and he will say they are disloyal and that they're traitors and that they're liar, rhino, cuck shills. And it will just end their campaign that day because Trump runs the party. No matter what fantasies Mitch McConnell has, and no matter how much Josh Holmes and Mitch McConnell think that they run the party, they will never step up in Trump's face and say, no, it's ours now. We're going to run this. This is how we're going to do it. They will be as passive aggressive as they can. They will make snarky little remarks on the dickless podcast or whatever. They will not go at Trump directly because they know he runs their party. He owns them. He owns them. Well, that's a good segue, Rick to our next topic. We put out an ad yesterday called Swamp Thing that really highlights the ongoing feud between Trump and McConnell that is not based in ideology, but really is just based in money and power. And I think we should take a little bit of credit here, which is, you know, about three weeks ago, I think, Rick and Stu, we put out an ad specifically aimed at driving a further wedge between them. We ran it in Palm Beach County at Mar-a-Lago so that Trump would see it. He subsequently went on Fox News on Hannity and said McConnell should be out of a job. In the last couple of days, McConnell has reacted to him because even Mitch McConnell, as pulseless as he normally is and cold-blooded as he normally is, just can't stand it sometimes. And, you know, I guess who could blame him? But before we listen to the ad, you know, Rick, why don't you take us through a little bit of the dynamic we saw here and why we decided this was the hinge point for where we wanted to be right now? We saw in the first ad in this series that we ran about Josh Holmes and Mitch McConnell mocking Donald Trump that it was going to set him off. Look, we're the anthropologists of the most horrible human being in the world. We know him like no one else does. And so we knew that it would trigger him. And we knew that the second round with Swamp Thing was going to continue that. Now, what we are doing, just so we can peel the curtain back for our listeners, is very simple. We're not trying to make Trump run for president again. That's going to happen whether we want it or not. We are doing everything we can to rip apart the track where Donald Trump's base, which now gives 80% of the donations to the Republican Party, blocks Mitch McConnell by saying, you're not loyal to Trump. You're not picking Trump's candidates. You're not doing what Trump wants. You're not kissing Trump's ass. You're not coming down to Mar-a-Lago and doing the grip and grin photo every few weeks. You're not spending enough money in Trump hotels. You're not doing the things that are the signs of faith to Donald Trump and his horde. And so because those things are so transactional and evident and venal and grotesque, they're very obvious and everyone can see them. They know that they're happening or they're not happening. Well, since they're not happening, we're pointing out to Trump because we don't have to go and spend, you know, a million dollars of TV to convince people Mitch McConnell is mocking Donald Trump. We only have to convince Donald Trump. It happens to be true, so it's even easier than usual. But this is the way the LP has been able to leverage our communications and ad-making abilities in a way that no other group can or does. And that is because we understand what will move Trump and we understand the biochemistry of the Republican Party. We understand what's happening inside of it. We understand the poisonous nature and the contradictory nature. Mitch McConnell wants to win a bunch of seats that are more moderate that are in states that are a little more dodgy for the GOP. They're not a bunch of hard red states in 22. And he knows he can't go out there with people that sound like Lynn Wood on a bender. He knows he can't go out there with people that are hardcore Donald Trump types. 
And so if we split McConnell and Trump, we do something that the Democratic Party is probably not going to be able to do on its own, which is to align the strategic battlefield where Mitch McConnell is an antagonist to Donald Trump and vice versa, while the Democrats slowly try to get their act together and get some good candidates into the pool. So, Rob, why don't we play the audio and then, Stu, I want to ask you a question after we listen. We are going to drain the swamp. But the swamp won, Donald. Mitch McConnell's Washington consultants are making big money using your name. We don't know if Mitch gets a cut, but what do you think, Donald? My friend, Donald Trump. You're getting played. He's picking candidates loyal to him. They brought you a little bowl to hold in your little hands, and you fell for it. What happened? They're laughing at you. (laughs) All the way to the bank. Maybe you shouldn't run again. Maybe the power Mitch McConnell has over the GOP is just too much for you. Maybe what McConnell and the rest of Washington is saying is true. That Trump is done. So, Stuart, you know, there's a dichotomy here, and I want to use this to segue into our next piece, too. But in a political party, who's in charge? Is it the elected class? of Mitch McConnell types? Is it the donor class of the Charles Schwab's and Mercer families who give tens of millions? Or is it the activists? Or is it the voters? There are sort of four distinct power plays, and it seems to me that the individual voter sort of comes in last, both in where they participate and in importance to their concerns. So who's in charge? Well, it's a fantastic question. I mean, books have been written about this subject. You know, there was a famous book called The Party Decides that came out in the 90s. And the premise of that was that ultimately, when you look at the history of nominations for president, the winner invariably was that person whom the party hierarchy in the end lined up behind. And there was a lot of evidence of that. I think the party has transformed now. And you look at 2016. When you had these, what, 16 candidates ended up on the stage, something like that. More of them ended up at the baby table running and Donald Trump. All of them attacked each other because they were confident that if they just got one-on-one with Donald Trump, Donald Trump wouldn't win because Republican Party, as we knew it, was not going to vote for an Anthony Weiner donor who'd been married three times, who was in the casino business, failed casino business, who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. That just was like the Republican Party wasn't going to do that. It was obvious. Well, can I just say when you put it that way, it's hard, it's hard to argue. Little did we know that was what the Republican Party was longing for. <laughs> and I think we learned a couple of things. One, that most of those candidates who ran against Trump were bad candidates, because I think a good candidate would have taken on Trump and would have defeated Trump. Now, that might have been at the cost of their own candidacy. We often see murder-suicide attacks. But had Jeb Bush in that first debate, when he was standing next to Donald Trump, because he was still front runner. It said to Donald Trump, whenever he got that first question to a debate, he said, look, I'll answer that first. I got a question for you, Donald. You insulted my wife. Will you apologize? And Trump would have said whatever Trump would say, but it wouldn't have been yes. And Jeff said, I, I didn't think so. You know, you're not worthy to stand on the stage. You're a disgrace. Running for president is an honor. Being a president is the greatest honor. You don't deserve to be on the stage. I'll answer this question. They could have dealt with Donald Trump. And as Donald Trump began to gather 
momentum in the primary because these people decided not to attack Donald Trump in any concerted, belief-based way. Trump sensed about them in a sort of animal way that they ultimately didn't care about anything but power. And if he could deliver to them power, everything that they had spent decades saying that they deeply believed that were fundamental to their core of who they were as politicians and human beings, they would just throw that out the window. From personal responsibility to snuggling up to Putin, to the idea that you should have a government where the deficit actually mattered, any of these things we used to say, which are kind of quaint now, they get rid of all of those, they would just give them power. And Trump understood that. So you had a collapse, a moral collapse of a party. And I don't think that we've seen anything like that in our lifetime or any broad level, except in the Soviet Union, where what the Communist Party said that it was for and what it actually was for became so disparate that it just sort of collapsed. And what happened to the Republican Party in 2016, and it continues to stay, it just sort of collapsed. All of this superstructure of beliefs and ideas, they just turned out to be marketing slogans. And so nobody fought. And what you have now is you have this sort of gang. And like most gangs, there's different factions. There's people who are in the money laundering business. There are people who are in the smash and grab business. There are people who are in the murder for hire business. There are people who are in the blackmail business. They're all part of the same gang. They all have different elements of it, but they're all based upon the degree to which they can deliver money. And that's the Republican Party pretty much now. And no one is going to stand up to it. And I think it's just going to continue to intensify. Eventually, it will burn itself out. But it is going to get much worse before it does. Yeah, but the question is, Stu, as it burns itself out, does it burn the country down with it? I think that's a very open question. Burns the country down as we see the country, very possibly. Again, whatever you say about the end of democracy, whatever you say at the beginning sounds alarmist. And whatever you say at the end is inadequate. It's like a pandemic. So it's very difficult for us to understand where this is headed. But I mean, I can't speak for anybody else. But as you told me, even after all this stuff we went through with Trump on December 1st, if you had said to me, hey, look, dude, January 6th, there's going to be an armed attack on the Capitol. They're going to kill people and they're going to try to kill U.S. senators to stop Donald Trump from having to step down from the presidency. I would say, oh, come on. I mean, that's like a bad movie. You're not going to have an attack on the Capitol. Yep, there we go. Well, you know, some of our folks have said, and I think others have said too, that if there was one thing 2016 was above all else, it was a failure of imagination, right? Yeah, it's a great point. I would put myself right up there as one of the major failures. Me too. Because I certainly didn't have the imagination to see it. Me neither, me neither. So let me talk about this because we've talked about the Republican Party is changing, it's shifting, it's metastasizing. So Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, who everyone who's ever known him, myself and probably Stewart included, has found him to be as loathsome a creature as one could imagine. Rick calls him Fat Wolverine, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week, and he talked about how he would no longer accept corporate PAC donations. And let me say this, it was enlightening in many ways, but let me just read a couple of passages for you and then I want you guys to respond. So he wrote, this is the point in the drama when Republicans usually shrug their shoulders, call these companies, quote, job creators, and start to cut their taxes. Not this time. 
This time, we won't look the other way on Coca-Cola's $12 billion in back taxes owed. This time, when Major League Baseball lobbies to preserve its multi-billion dollar antitrust exemption, we'll say no thank you. This time, when Boeing asks for billions in corporate welfare, we'll simply let the Export-Import Bank expire. But he also added this, In my nine years in the Senate, I've received $2.6 million in contributions from corporate political action committees. Starting today, I no longer accept money from any corporate PAC. I urge my GOP colleagues at all levels to do the same. For too long, Republicans have allowed the left and their big business allies to attack our values with no response. We've allowed them to ship jobs overseas, attack gun rights, and destroy our energy companies. But he concluded by saying this, when the time comes that you need help with a tax break or a regulatory change, I hope the Democrats take your calls, because we may not. Starting today, we won't take your money either. So, Rick, a couple of things. The Republican Party and big business have been attached at the hip for decades. The chamber, most local chambers, right? They're talking about tax cuts. They're talking about back taxes. That's one. Two, don't want to take corporate PAC money anymore. This is pretty much the gospel of every Democratic candidate running for office in this country at this point. And lastly, he's basically saying it was all pay to play. It's always been pay to play. And now, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. I mean, Ted Cruz could be a Democrat on campaign finance. I have to just be as direct as I can about this. Like every other word that slips out of Ted Cruz's sewer hole, it's a lie. Ted Cruz is still going to take corporate and PAC money. He is completely full of crap. He is going to just launder it through somebody else's committee, and they're going to spend it for him. Or he'll say, oh, well, the Texas Liberation Freedom Eagle Forum isn't my super PAC, but I guess they like me. He's going to go back and play that game. Because I'll tell you one other thing. Ted Cruz is one of these slicky guys who probably thinks he's going to get away with saying to the Breitbart crowd, the Fox crowd, oh, I'm not going to take the liberal corporate money, and that they'll believe it. Is he saying he's not going to take help from the NRSC if he needs it? Because they're going to sure as hell take corporate money. So this is just, I think, one more example of Ted Cruz being a lying liar who lies. But it is also, in the messaging frame, part of the national populism that's rising up right now, where they're saying things like, you know, Rubio tweets a couple of weeks ago that we've got to basically control what corporations can do, and Cruz saying that they're the enemy now. They recognize that the dichotomy that we helped create back in January between, you know, corporate social responsibility and people who wanted to overthrow the government and who wanted to disenfranchise millions of black voters, they're trapped now. They have to feed the beast in their base, but they also in a lot of these races, cannot be like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz lives in a pretty safe state and can always raise a lot of grassroots money. And he just got reelected. This is a luxury for Ted. And believe me, he'll walk that back and there will be some new super PAC from one of Ted's repellent consultant people like Jeff Rowe or somebody else. And it will be the nod and the wink of, yeah, you can give your money over here at the, you know, shit kicker caucus, whatever super PAC. That's Ted's people. It's so transparent. And it's so repulsive, but here we are. So, Stuart, let me ask you a question. And this goes a little bit back to the swamp thing and the fight that we're encouraging between McConnell and Trump. If Mitch McConnell were truly in charge of his conference in the U.S. Senate, 
No way in hell does Ted Cruz put this in the Wall Street Journal. Absolutely no way. And I'm sure when McConnell read it, he was apoplectic about it. You know, he just says these things to get attention. You know, Ted Cruz is forever the weird kid in the back of the class farting, hoping that somebody will notice. And he doesn't believe this. It's ridiculous. He's sort of pouting because he did this little thing, which was to try to disenfranchise millions of African-American votes to overturn the election of the president of the United States. And corporations, which kind of like democracy, that's the dirty little secret here, is not the corporations like the left. Corporations like this thing we call the free enterprise system. They like operating in America. They like not having to deal with a Putin. They get rich. They hire people. They do okay. This is not a bad place to start a business in America. And part of that goes to the essence, a huge part of it is rule of law. All of this stuff, this great American experiment. So because these corporations said to Cruz, you know, we're going to draw a line here. Those that are for democracy and those who are against democracy. And we're going to support those that are for democracy. Ted Cruz took that personally (laughs) and decided, like, I mean, that's just too much. I don't want your money. So can I take a contrary view? One is that Ted Cruz doesn't care what Mitch McConnell thinks of anything. Two is this is part of an ongoing culture war, the woke corporations that attempt to get, to Rick's point, the national populism revved up against the big CEOs. But here's maybe the other part, too, that I think is maybe even more essential. Cruz raised something like $5 million in the first quarter of this year, the vast majority of it from small dollar donors. So it very well might be that he doesn't need corporate PAC money. In fact, a lot of these folks don't. Marjorie Taylor Greene raised over $2 million. Hawley raised over $3 million. So the worst actors are the ones who don't need it in the first place, who don't care because they're nihilists. They don't care about governance. They don't care about companies. We should also note the extreme irony of the fact that Ted Cruz's wife is a senior executive at Goldman Sachs. Like, this is not exactly a guy divorced from big business or big banks in this country. But maybe he doesn't care anymore because if he's going to raise 20 million bucks in the off year, just in small dollar donations, he might be able to say, keep your 5,000 bucks, Coca-Cola, keep your 5,000 bucks, Boeing. I don't want you and I don't want to be beholden to you. I think Cruz and Pauly, they are desperate to come up with some way to connect to these Trump non-college educated white voters. So these guys have as little in common with them as humans possibly could. They have no shared value system except for this thread of deep suspicion of people who aren't white. But these are the elite of the elite. There's not one elite ticket that Ted Cruz hasn't punched. I mean, he worked in the White House. He was the Supreme Court clerk. He went to Yale. This is the elite of the elite. And these Trump voters, they know this about Cruz. They sense it about Cruz. He's never going to be able to get there. So he sort of clumsily overacts, like, you know, someone on stage, you see overacting, like, I'm going to be like a villain. I'm going to like twirl my mustache. So he goes and he votes to disenfranchise African-Americans. So did Hawley. Where did he get Hawley? Well, I can announce today that my campaign for the Republican nomination of president in 2024 is doing just as well as Josh Hawley. We have the same polling, which is zero. We're both at zero. And I spent less money, but 
I had better consultants. <laughs> well, and we should not ignore the fact that Cruz took a picture of himself and his wife sitting in, you know, Millionaire's Row at Churchill Downs this right. past weekend, enjoying a julep in the Kentucky Derby. You know, like the little people do. <laughs> I think we look back on this area and one of the fascinating aspects of it is going to be how Republicans lost touch with America. For all their talk about we really represent America. So just review the bidding. In the past couple of years, Republicans have gotten on the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR over Confederate flags. They've gotten on the wrong side of a cultural war with Walmart over wearing masks in their stores. They've gotten on the wrong side of the sneaker war with Nike on protest. They've lost touch with this. And it's because they're rooted in the past and culture is about the future. So just to cap off this episode, so it is one year ago today that we dropped onto Fox News, specifically onto Tucker Carlson's program, May 4th, 2020, an ad called Morning in America, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, in America. And it was a reinterpretation of the very famous Hal Reine 1984 ad, Morning in America, that he produced on behalf of Ronald Reagan for his reelection campaign where he won 49 states. Our ad was a wake-up call, I think, for what the country would become with another four years of Donald Trump. Remember, at this point, tens of thousands of Americans had died from COVID. We were less than eight weeks into a broad shutdown, and millions of jobs had evaporated nearly overnight. So why don't we listen to the audio clip, and then let's talk a little bit about just what it meant for the Lincoln Project and the role we played in the campaign. There's mourning in America. Today, more than 60,000 Americans have died from a deadly virus Donald Trump ignored. With the economy in shambles, more than 26 million Americans are out of work. The worst economy in decades. Trump bailed out Wall Street, but not Main Street. This afternoon, millions of Americans will apply for unemployment. And with their savings run out, many are giving up hope. Millions worry that a loved one won't survive COVID-19. There's mourning in America. And under the leadership of Donald Trump, our country is weaker and sicker and poorer. And now, Americans are asking, if we have another four years like this, will there even be an America? So, you know, I haven't watched the ad in a while, Rick, but just thinking about that, how prescient it was in 60 seconds of what the balance of the year of 2020 would look like. Before we get into the production of it, the conceit of it, I just want to tell you that so it was about 11 o'clock p.m. on May the 4th, 2020. I'm, I'm sitting, getting ready to go to bed. I'm checking Twitter one last time. And I see, I see something. I do a double take. I'm like, what's going on here? And I realize that Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, has seen the ad and is attacking us on Twitter. And it was the exact thing we wanted at the exact time we wanted it. And it was a perfect reaction to what we thought it was going to be. And this is what he tweeted that night, quote, a group of rhino Republicans who failed badly 12 years ago, then again, eight years ago, and then got badly beaten by me, a political first timer four years ago, have copied parenthesis, no imagination, the concept of an ad from Ronald Reagan. He then goes on 
to name all of us either by name or by inference. He calls me Reed Galvin, G-A-L-V-I-N. And there's some poor bastard named Reed Galvin out there who still gets hate mail, and I'm sorry for that. And I realized that we gotten him, that we had purchased inside the cranium. But talk a little bit to the folks who maybe that's the first time they'd ever heard of us. Maybe they've never even seen that ad about how it came to be. The conceit, as we started to develop this ad, one of the most famous political ads in history by, as you mentioned, the great Hal Reine in 1984. During the presidential race, the Democrats were running essentially a doom and gloom campaign. And Ronald Reagan was running a campaign that reflected what a lot of people felt in the economy, which was optimism which was success was coming. The world had improved since the recession of 79 and 80, and that they were giving themselves the freedom to hope for a better future. Well, that ad caught that moment and amplified it. And we kept talking about, and you and me and Steve and Stu kept iterating on it. This, folks, you know, was one of the ads, normally our ads run in a very quick cycle, you know, as little as a day, you know, a three, four day ads, a long work process for us. But this ad was over several weeks. We really handcrafted this piece and our great editor, Ben Howe, and our great composer, Sean Patterson, both of them really put the tremendous amount of effort into this to capture a big emotional moment. And we wanted to flip the 1984 trope on its head. And so we took the lines and basically mirrored them And we showed people what was happening with COVID, with the economy, with the failed leadership of Trump. And it had, in my career, I've never made an ad that had the same cultural impact as this ad did, ever. And it did. It triggered Donald Trump. And it also, from what our source that we had in the campaign told me later, that we were right in our assessment that this was an unspinnable ad. They couldn't say that it wasn't true because the economy was crashing. COVID was rising. Trump was failing. All those things were undeniably, indisputably true. And it caught a moment. And, you know, we know how powerfully Republicans used to respond to Ronald Reagan. And it still had some resonance with a lot of more moderate Republicans and older Republicans who said, look at that. I mean, this is a, a reminder how bad things have become. So, I mean, we all worked and worked and worked on that ad to get it just right. And I'm enormously proud of the impact it had. And it did troll Trump in a way that got us into the game as primary antagonists to this guy. So, Stuart, you know, I was fascinated the next day, May 5th, Donald Trump is standing on the tarmac in front of Air Force One. And I believe it was Jim Acosta from CNN asks, what do you think of this ad? What do you think of this group? And he says they call themselves the Lincoln Project. They should really be called the Loser Project. You know, I've stood, I am lucky enough to be someone who stood on the tarmac in front of Air Force One more times than I can count. And I can promise you, I was shocked by it because I couldn't imagine a president of the United States calling out a bunch of political consultants and giving them all that they wanted, just hook, line, and sinker. I found it a fascinating reaction from someone who I'm sure People in his orbit were saying, don't do it. Just let it go. If you let it go, they'll disappear. Trump is the dog that will always chase the car. And it's one of his great weaknesses. And I think it's one of the brilliant aspects about Trump that you guys understood and Rick had written this book on. It was an extension of what became these whispers ads that Rick did where you get inside internal monologue. Look, there's the troubling thing. It wasn't just the Lincoln Project that figured this out. It was Russian intelligence 
It was the Chinese that figured this out. And, you know, North Korea. This is one of the reasons that Trump has been such a debacle for America, because if you pet him, he will follow you home. That is the heart and soul of what the Republican Party is now. To key on something that Stewart said about the Russians and the North Koreans and the Chinese, we knew, especially in the depths of COVID, where Donald Trump would be every night. He'd be sitting in the residence with his super TiVo in one hand and his phone or a Big Mac in the other. And he'd be watching Fox News because that's all he did. That's all he did. So the idea of having to target anything outside of the White House, Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, you didn't need to do it because you knew that you could talk to him directly. And we do it to this day. It's funny, Reed. Just today, someone tweeted, oh, well, the new ad is only spending $18,000 and only in Palm Beach. I'm like, where would you like me to spend money to influence Donald Trump? I'm not going to go up with a million-dollar cable buy in Boise if I only need to push Donald Trump's buttons in Mar-a-Lago. I got to ask you a question. How much does this ad cost? I have fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. Okay, it was legendary when Hal Rainey made this ad. You know, there's a shot that opens with the flowers when it's morning in America. That for five days he couldn't get the right shot, and for each of those days he flew in flowers from Holland at a cost of over $200,000. That's art right there, man. That's a commitment to the art. So instead of having to fly in flowers from Holland for five days and spend a fortune making an ad, you made one for you know the cost of a couple of tulips and were a- able to rock the world of the president of the United States. And that's the difference between the way the, the current media environment is and what you understood about it and the way it was. Well, I will say this in closing out and, you know, of all the things that we've had to be proud of as part of this, I think certainly having been a part of that will certainly always be amongst my biggest points of pride. But I will also say that I think that the reason why it was so effective is because Donald Trump in reality don't like to meet. And this forced him to confront what he knew was happening and was going to happen if he was president for longer than another seven months or whatever it is and he ended up being, was that he was incapable of dealing with it, that it had gotten loose on the country. He didn't have the capacity to deal with it. He didn't want to deal with it. He wanted it to be somebody else's fault. And certainly Jared and Miller and Kellyanne and the rest of the banality of evil Happy Days crew were incapable of dealing with it either. Well, and you know, every single one of them recognized that once we had the ability to tap Trump's brain, that we had the ability to cause him to react to us, they understood that the campaign was going to go very far south. They weren't going to have control of the agenda and saying every day, oh, yes, senile Joe Biden is about to die of dementia. You know, they couldn't do that or spin out the Ukraine story the way they wanted. Their campaign, it didn't exist anywhere outside of the Fox Trump brain space. The one thing our supporters may not know is that the Trump campaign spent millions of dollars in Washington, D.C., on cable and television in D.C., responding to our ads because Donald Trump's feelings were hurt. They couldn't, for a moment, let Donald Trump see one of our ads without three or four Trump ads on the same day part because he would freak out. And every time that happened, we were draining them of millions of dollars of money that they should have been devoting in Georgia or elsewhere. And I was always really proud of that. I always thought that was just like one of the most hilarious things we accomplished was was we got these guys to spend money in D.C. 
<laughs> that will never get old. Well, and I think, Rick, to bring this one to a close, I think that was the point, was that we were able to take the entire superstructure of Trump Inc., Trump politics, Trump White House, and turn it toward us and make ourselves his prime antagonist, keep ourselves his prime antagonist, probably up to this very day. I think we can all attest to the personal things that some of us have gone through that they blame us far more than they blame anybody else. Sure. Oh, yeah. Hey, Reed, before we go, I just want to mention and give a huge thank you to everyone who joined our national town hall last week. First off, it's great to be with you and Stuart and Steve. It's the first time we've all been together since the campaign. But I, I just also wanted to say how honored I was to see so many people who joined up for the spring fundraiser with us for a live town hall to support the ongoing work we're doing. It, just, it was really gratifying, and I want to thank everybody from the bottom of my heart on that. No, Rick, absolutely thank you for that. And almost 2,500 people, I think, attended, and we will be doing far more of those as we get later in the summer and through the fall. And obviously, as we get into next year, you'll see a lot more of us. But with that, Rick, you and I are doing an Instagram Live on Thursday, time to be determined. But before then, where can we find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Twitter. All right. And Stuart, where can we find you? Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. And some exciting news, LPTV will be back May 25th, better and brighter than ever. So I'm excited to see Maya and Lisa and Tara and Rick back on the Lincoln Project airwaves. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking, with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.